Please be seated. Good morning and welcome to Christ the King. Uh, we begin a new sermon series today. The series is titled Lex Orandi Lex Credendi. Now what does that mean? That's a fancy Latin phrase which means the law of worship or the way you worship affects what you believe. Lex credendi, lex orandi, the law of worship affects your belief. That simply means that how you worship reflects, and not only reflects, but also informs how, what you believe. And every church worships, there's no right way, there's no wrong ways, there are certainly different ways. Uh, and Anglicanism has its own unique way of worshiping. And over the next five weeks, we're going to look at how we worship and consider how we worship reflects, and not only reflects, but shapes what we believe. I'm pleased to introduce our guest preacher. I should say, I, I, it'll be a very brief introduction. I'll say a little bit more during announcements, but Morgan Reed will be our guest preacher for this morning. Morgan, thank you for being with us. Thank you. Let me pray as we get started. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Well, greetings. Uh, good morning. I am uh, Morgan Reed, and I am a church planter. I am the planting clergy at Corpus Christi Anglican Church, and we are delighted to worship with you this morning. We were really excited for the opportunity to have a joint service together and worship in the Eucharist, um, and it's just a gift to be here. We are a church that serves um, the Franconia, so the other Alexandria, uh, down below the Beltway and, and Kingstown, and we serve Springfield, uh, even down as far as Newington, almost to Lorton. We've got quite the range. Um, but it is an amazing journey. We actually started in the pandemic, uh, if you can believe that. We started in March 2020. God had placed it on our hearts to plant a church, and the question was where. And so as I prayed about where we would be, where we would go, a friend said to me over breakfast, have you ever thought about planting in Springfield? There are no ACNA churches out here. And I thought, well, that's, that's uh, let me think about that, pray about that. And surely enough, I drove all the way from Huntington down to Springfield and all around the region, and there were no ACNA churches all the way from 495 um, all the way down to Woodbridge, except for one in Mount Vernon. And so there are a lot of people down there and, and not a lot of ACNA churches. So God led us to plant in that space. And we also love Latin, uh, just like you this morning. And so our name is Latin, Corpus Christi Anglican Church. We had originally been called the Franconia Springfield Mission, so you may have heard of us that way. Um, and we started out as that to give you a sense of place. As we went along and kept worshiping together and prayed about what our name would become uh, more permanently, uh, God led us to the name Corpus Christi Anglican Church. Corpus Christi meaning the body of Christ, which emphasizes both our sacramental life together in worship, um, our sacramental place in the world, but also the body of Christ. It, we have a hospitality-driven kind of uh, ministry. And so all of those things come together as, as Corpus Christi Anglican Church. Our vision for the church is to become a common people in common prayer for uncommon transformation. And the thinking behind that is that we are really common people, right? We are not, there's nothing about us that God says, you know, I need that one on my team. Uh, we are very common people. And just like Lex Orandi, Lex Credendi, the idea that we are being shaped in common prayer for uncommon transformation. There are a lot of ways people are seeking transformation, but what we're committed to is a life of prayer that transforms a community. And so we're still in our pre-launch phase. If you were to ask, where's your building? I would say, well, um, 
there's a couple places where we exist. One is our car every week where I stuff all of the things that we need for Eucharist and children's ministry into the car, and I drive it to Green Spring Gardens where we worship uh, over in the Lincolnia area right now. And uh, so that's where we're at on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. And, uh, you know, we'll see where God brings us to next. We are very much in a season of tabernacling. But I've been grateful for uh, Maggie Duke, who some of you may know. She's been helping us get our kids' ministry together um, so that we can have catechesis of the Good Shepherd for the older kids. And so in the next space, we'll be able to offer that. But we have just been so grateful for the team God's putting together. And once those things are in place, we'll be able to publicly launch somewhere. And we're so grateful for you for praying for us, for supporting us, and, and just giving us this opportunity to share a little bit about what God's doing there. We love the liturgy. Uh, you know, some would describe us as high church or Anglo-Catholic. We, we love the liturgy. And, and one thing that um, Father David mentioned this morning that I think is really important is that there are a lot of ways to worship. Liturgy is no uh, silver bullet for holiness. And so it's really important as we come into this passage. Um, as we come into this passage, it, it calls us to meditate on how we even approach God in the liturgy. Before we come to the liturgy, how do we even approach? How, where do we begin? And so as you look at your outline, the first thing that it teaches us is to watch your heart and not your status. We try and approach God sometimes looking put together, and we want to feel like we're okay, that we're in control. In verse 9, Jesus starts us out with this parable, and it says that he spoke it to those who had confidence in themselves that they were righteous, and those who disdained other people. Their self-reliance wasn't just a one-time thing. This was their disposition. It's who they were. And what does it look like in our day to trust in ourselves that we're righteous? What does that look like now? When we think about what the Pharisees look like today from this parable, it's someone who appears outwardly religious and they may do spiritual things in the most spiritual places. And I, I think it can be easy to pick out public um, persons like this that we've seen Fall. I've been listening to a really helpful article, well, a helpful podcast um, called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Many of you may have be, be listening to it now as well. And it details the birth and the rise and the fall of this empire that had been created by this now disgraced pastor, Mark Driscoll. And it details a culture that is fueled by Driscoll's narcissism and his chauvinism and his anger. And when it was at its height back in 2013, Mars Hill had almost just this one church had twice the number of people worshiping on a Sunday that our entire diocese has. It was huge. As Driscoll tightened his grip on power, he was firing elders and pastors almost weekly. I mean, it was just a revolving door of leadership. And so then the, the pride and the abuses that were inflicting the people began to emerge to the surface, and the church began to unravel. And it was a quick unraveling. By 2014, he promptly left, and this multi-site church became multiple independent congregations. So the podcast asks, who killed Mars Hill? And the answer is, it's really complicated. There's not one factor. But one of the deepest problems is that the church stemmed from a man's working for Jesus out of a place of pride and anger and sin, rather than a deep well of union with God. 
It's easy to listen to those kinds of stories and to think, I am so glad I'm not like that, right? Driscoll's desire to change the city was a good thing, to avoid becoming like the secular culture around him, to build up strong men, strong families. But those things were interwoven with seeds of pride that took root and they germinated and they grew for way too long. Those same seeds of pride are sown in us when we say things like, I'm so glad I'm not like that. And unless we recognize those seeds and we start ripping them out of the ground, out of the soil, then it only takes the right life conditions for those things to take root and to germinate and to grow in us as well. So let me share with you a few places for me that I've been trying to pluck up and cast out the seeds of pride. Maybe these are helpful for you as well. First, comparison with other people. That's a seed of pride. There's always going to be people that are more successful than we are. There's always going to be people that are more gifted than we are. And rather than thanking God for the gifts that he's given us, we fixate on why they're doing so well and why we aren't. Why we haven't been given the same opportunities and gifts that they've been given. It can be tempting to want to appear put together before other people, especially in this area. And, and in those cases, um, one of the other things we can do is prop up ourselves at the expense of other people, just like the Pharisee in this story. God, to thank you. I'm not like other men, tax collectors and sinners. So that's one seed of pride, comparing ourselves with others. A second seed of pride is coming to God as an echo chamber for our own opinions. Coming to God as an echo chamber for our own opinions. The Pharisee begins his prayer thanking God that he's not like other people. And while it's true that God loves us as we are, he certainly doesn't want us to stay that way. We need voices that are going to challenge our assumptions. We need people to call us to repentance. We need to be reminded that we're not okay and that not everything is in our control. The voices and those moments that, that do that for us are the voice of the Holy Spirit that sets out to root out our pride so that we don't rely on ourselves. And that brings us to the third seed. The third seed of pride that we can tear out of the ground is, is to fixate on our own diligence and on our own labor and not God's grace what happens here. It can be easy to look at the labor of our hands, all the good things that we're doing that we've set for our hands to do, and to use that as a justification for the inward condition of our heart that may be sorely lacking. We mask the good things of God, you know, with, with talking about God himself. Perhaps our hearts are saying, hey, God, look at all the great things I'm doing for you. I must be okay. I'm working really hard for you, Jesus. And instead of that disposition, we should be cultivating a deep inner life with God because our work for God needs to stem from a deep union and life with our Heavenly Father. So using the work that we're doing to justify the condition of our hearts is a seed of pride that needs to be uprooted. Good prayer. You know, when you think about the phrase, what is good prayer? A good prayer begins with the recognition that you and I need God's help. That's where good prayer starts. And what's the attitude that we should pray? Uh, if you were to look at our catechism in the Anglican Church, it asks that question. And it says, it says, I should pray with humility, love, and a ready openness to hear and do God's will. And that brings us to the tax collector. 
So, what the tax collector shows us is to come broken. It's the second point on your outline. We should come broken and in need because when we are broken and in need, we are most ready to receive God's transformative grace. The tax collector, who's only given one verse in this passage, he invites us to approach God with a broken and a contrite spirit, not a self-justifying and self-confident spirit. That one verse shows for us how we're called to approach God in worship in order so that our lives would be transformed by God's grace. To be renewed by God's grace, we have got to come broken. The tax collector wasn't just somebody of a lower social status, but he was actually like a traitor to his people. It's not exactly the same, but I was trying to think about modern equivalents of this, and I was thinking about what it would be like if somebody in our church worked for a private collections agency and the IRS was contracting that person out to collect tax debt. And maybe you know somebody who's had their goods or uh, incomes or, or a certain level of income taken by these collection agencies, and now this person ends up in your church. What do you do? They sit quietly in the back. Maybe they stand. They come late and they leave early because they know it's awkward. They know some of the people in the church. Uh, they know friends and family of people in the church, and they've taken things from them because that's their job. And you think to yourself, there's no way someone like that can do the job that they do and be a Christian. That's the feeling of this parable. Even though the tax collector is hated by the community, this one in the story is the one who receives God's grace and mercy. And it's because his recognition of his own need for God's mercy, that it, that's what allowed him to leave transformed. The Pharisee had judged the man purely on his vocation, and his calling. But God does not see as man sees. The tax collector was less worried about his vocation, and he was more worried about his standing with God and his need for God's mercy. So to approach God with that kind of humility reminds me of a paragraph. One of the things that is nice about our Anglican tradition is we can look back to the saints of old for guidance on these things. There's a great document called the Rule of St. Benedict. And in chapter 7, he's describing what humility looks like in intentional community in the monastic life. And he says this in, about the twelfth step of humility. He says, The twelfth step of humility is that the monk, not only in his heart, but by means of his very body, always shows his humility to all who see him. That is, in work, in the oratory, in the monastery, in the garden, on the road, in the field, or wherever he may be, whether sitting, walking, or standing, with head always bent down and eyes fixed on the earth, he always thinks of the guilt of his sins and imagines himself always present before the terrible judgment seat of God, always saying in his heart what the publican in the gospel said with his eyes fixed on the earth, Lord, I am a sinner, not worthy to raise my eyes to heaven. And when I hear something like that, sometimes I, I have a hard time with passages like that, and I know other people do too. They've told me, and, and the reason why is it feels like we're called to grovel before God. It feels like we're supposed to walk around sullen and depressed and somber, or at least fake it, and that doesn't feel authentic. But I think what's happening in this passage, what God's call to humility is, um, that this passage demonstrates, is what later monks would call uh, recollection. Recollection. It's this withdrawal from the externals in order to pay attention to what God's doing in the inner person. 
Think of Mary and Martha. And it takes years to cultivate good recollection, but it's in the recollection moments, in those silent moments in fellowship with God, that God situates us in a paradox. And the paradox is that we are mortal creatures who are made of dust, and that God utterly loves us as his children. Good habits of recollection equip us with the humility that we need to prepare ourselves for God's grace and mercy without groveling hopelessly and without overestimating our own worthiness like the Pharisee. Sowing a habit of recollection will reap a harvest of humility because if we want to be renewed by the grace of God, we have to start by, by coming broken. Which brings us to our third point, that we're to view our lives as a preparation for worship. Our liturgy calls us to that. It calls us to prepare to receive God's grace. Jesus concludes the parable saying that everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be lifted up. The disposition of one's heart means so much more than one's position in the temple, or in our case, in the church. The disposition of somebody's heart means so much more than your place in the church. So how we worship matters. It's impossible to disconnect the week that we've had from the celebration of the Eucharist. Eradicating the seeds of pride is a work of recollection, which is why Anglicans have the daily office. We have uh, prayer times of morning, midday, evening, and compline to create spaces for recollection. It's a habit that allows us to celebrate the Eucharist in a way that makes us more ready to receive the grace and mercy of our God who loves us and to be transformed. In his discussion on the Eucharist, and I have this in your outline, the Orthodox, uh, the late Orthodox theologian Alexander Schmemann says this. He says, the journey begins when Christians leave their home and beds. They leave indeed their life in the present and concrete world. And whether they have to drive 15 miles or walk a few blocks, a sacramental act is already taking place an act which is the very condition of everything else that's to happen. For they are now on their way to constitute the church, or to be more exact, to be transformed into the church of God. They've been in the natural world, and they've been a natural community, and now they have been called to come together in one place to bring their lives, their very world, with them, and to be more than what they were, a new community with a new life. We're already far beyond the categories of common prayer and worship. The purpose of this coming together is not simply to add some religious dimension to the natural community or to make it better, to make it more Christian, more responsible. The purpose is to fulfill the church. And that means to make present the one in whom all things are at their end and all things are at their beginning. So the liturgy begins before we arrive on Sunday morning. One of the problems that we see in someone like Mark Driscoll, and I think if we're honest ourselves, is that our attempt to do things for God often outpaces our life with God. Right? Our attempt to do things for God outpaces our life with God. Jesus calls us to come humbly, and our liturgy prepares us for meeting God's grace in worship. It's a journey from our dusty human frailty to new creation in the liturgy. And just like any journey... It takes preparation. So here are ways that you might think about preparing. The first, as I mentioned before, is recollection. You can do that during the daily office or outside the daily office, but spend quiet time being in the presence of God. You can also begin looking at the lectionary 
readings and the collects for the next Sunday and just start meditating on them throughout the week as a household. Have discussions about them. We can spend time in self-examination, asking God to search our hearts. You can do that with something like Psalm 51 or another psalm. Um, Often when I hear confessions, I give people a self-examination based on the seven deadly sins that they've found helpful as well. And if all else fails, build in times of silence during the week. Maybe you have 30 seconds of silence before meals. Maybe you have 30 seconds in the car before coming into church. The main thing is Sunday begins at home. We have to prepare ourselves to receive God's love, his mercy, and his grace by approaching him in humility. That's where it begins. The parable is permission not to be put together when we gather for worship. So if you feel like you are not put together this morning, you're in the right place. If your inner world feels broken, you have permission to be undone when you come to corporate worship. If we want to be renewed by God's grace, we have to start by coming broken. Because that's the best way to open ourselves up to the transformative grace of God. Let us pray. Oh God, you declare your almighty power, chiefly in showing mercy and pity. Grant us the fullness of your grace, that we, running to obtain your promises, may become partakers of your heavenly treasure. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.